Hello again, Give Back Gang, and welcome to the Give Back Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Friedman, and today I've got a special treat for you. My guests are a father-son tandem that have reshaped the international tennis landscape. They're both fierce competitors that lead with their brains rather than brawn. As we will today in an all Give Back Sports podcast episodes, we'll learn how our guests have parlayed athletic accolades or influence within the world of sports into an opportunity to uplift the community around them. As a reminder, if you have any questions for our wonderful guests, please post them on our social media channels. And without further ado, I'm stoked to introduce Mr. Brad and Mr. Zach Gilbert. What do you guys have your eye on at the Davis Cup? First of all, what up, Brett? How's what it going? <laughs> well, it's only, unfortunately, I haven't bought the ITF, their package, so we just get, uh, I have the FS2, which only gives you the American matches, so, like, the, uh, I didn't get to see the matches today. I mean, I'm trying to get used to the new format, but, you know, I'm being open-minded. How about that? Yeah, just for a little context, it's totally different this year. They switched the Davis Cup final to just a, a one-week event. One week, right? One week. Where, whereas before, it played out over the, the course of the whole year, so it's all sort of condensed into this hyper format. Why do you think they did that? Well, unfortunately, it, it's a oldest competition, basically, in tennis. The last 15 years, even though it's this incredibly prestigious event, the top players weren't supporting. So a lot of times during the year, maybe you're only getting two or three of the top ten, and you're getting a lot of the, the big ties where the main players aren't playing. So they went with this soccer guy. Oh, PK. Yeah, yeah, for the Spanish kind of international. And he put together this whole event, you know, which the ITF bought into a 25-year deal that they're going to play the event in one week and like have it be like a World Cup of tennis. I would have actually liked to see it instead of every year, maybe every other year or every four years to even make it a little more prestigious. But I'm going to be open-minded. They did attract more of the top ten players this year than they have in the past. They got five of the top ten and maybe about 12 of the top 20, so that's a good start. But the crowds have been a little bit sparse. But let's hope it gets better. Tennis doesn't do moderation that well. They tend to just like go all out with the schedule all the time. And sometimes I think they could they could pull back a little bit. That might be the wiser decision. In a three month period, we had after the US Open this Labor Cup, which is now three years old. We're having the new format of the Davis Cup, which is this week. And then the first week in January, it's a $22 million new ATP, like, World Nations Cup. So you're going to have three team events, basically, in a three-and-a-half, four-month period. So it's like one of those things could be survival of fitness. Maybe a couple of them end up having to join together. But it, it seems like it's a lot in, in a short period of time. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that they're going to this model because – Typically, when people think about tennis, they think individualistic sport, right? But you guys can speak to this better than anyone, possibly. The fact that you are an individual on the court performing doesn't mean you're not part of a team, right? Well, normally, as an independent contractor, your ATP ranking, everything you do, you're individual. But when you play Davis Cup or you play the Olympics, 
it is for your country. It is a team format. But listen, marketplace dictates sometimes how this will all work out. If there's a place for it and the players support it, it's possible. But there's a really good chance that, okay, that maybe this is a little overzealous to have three competitions a year. But I think if you get it right, like what they have with the with the Labor Cup, like uh, fans love it, and it does bring out an added level of tension. And I think you see nerves uh, building and uh, with players that you wouldn't see a lot of times in individual competition. So. There, I think there's certainly a, a place for it, and yeah, obviously we do have the, the background having both played college tennis as well, and my dad, you know, playing Davis Cup. Team tennis is a, is a different animal. Yeah, it's nerve-wracking, but it's sometimes the wins are, I think, are even more rewarding. I mean, the greatest experience for me that when you play Davis Cup or you play the Olympics, you don't hear your name. You know, it's Game USA. Mm-hmm. And there's something about that that all of a sudden. The first time that you hear, I was a ball boy when I was 10 years old for Davis Cup in the United States versus Romania. My dad said, you're playing Davis Cup. I was like, okay, yeah, I guess so. And amazingly, about 16 years later, I did. And then when you actually hear that, it takes you back, uh-oh. And then all of a sudden, it, it takes you into a different competitive mindset that you're now not just playing for yourself because – I take wins and losses harder, but you know that when you're playing, you know, for your team's colors, it means a lot, especially if you don't play well, it hurts. That's absolutely right. And it also reminds me of something that I wanted to ask you about. I love hearing about my guest's origin story, so to speak, right? And Zach and I were talking about his origin story when you were in the 88 Seoul Olympics. (laughs) What was, Brad, what was going through your mind while baby Zach was just about ready to grace the world with his presence? To be honest with you, we lived in a time then, well, listen, we didn't know it, but there was no cell phone. There was no iPad. And it's like, you had the 18, you know, number calling card. Now you're dating me a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember we had this payphone station at the Olympics Village. And I remember being on a payphone late at night. You know, it, maybe it was better time frame for getting Kim, my day. And I remember it's the only time of the three kids that we actually found out about what the sex was going to be. And I don't even know why that on this one phone call, when I called Kim and she told me that, we were about maybe so this was uh, yeah, maybe seven weeks from having uh, the baby that it was going to be a boy. And I remember raising my arms and I was like all pumped. And as I was raising my arms and getting all pumped about having a son, there was a guy next to me in the same situation, doing the exact same moment at the same time, raising his arm. And he screamed much louder. I think he was a wrestler. And it's going to be a boy. At the sixth moment. Pretty wild. And we then looked at each other and I was like, okay, better go back to our conversation. <laughs> <laughs> there was no embrace, no bro hug, nothing. I think a fist pump. A fist pump does the trick. A fist pump and then back to your phone call, back to my phone call. <laughs> it was like back in the day, man, it was like, Okay, yeah. That's true, you're on the clock. You're on the, the clock phone, right? and like, a yeah. couple of people are like, hey, listen, you know, there's a, there's a cue. 
<laughs> oh my gosh. For that, the yeah. lawn now. <laughs> Zach, do you remember your first memory of your dad playing tennis? Honestly, it's a little fuzzy when he was still playing pro. He stopped playing when I was about five, six years old. So I remember little bits and pieces. I mean, it was such a cool experience to get to kind of like travel the world with my mom and my dad when I was just a little, you know, toddler, pre-K age, you know, going to tournaments everywhere. So I picked up all these little bits of lots of different cities that we went to, little memories of like getting like some good, some bad, like getting chicken pox in like Australia or like, <laughs> just like a, like a cherry blossom festival like in Japan, like little things like that. And I remember when we would play a little bit more than when he was playing his matches. But then I really like, you know, started absorbing everything when my dad started coaching Andre, which was he pretty much did it seamlessly as his career ended. He started coaching Andre and almost right away, Andre, you know, won the U.S. Open and won Australia. And I remember those like really vividly. So that was probably the earliest memories I have being out there with him. Hmm. I think our, our first interesting bonding trip together. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, Zach I, was I don't remember this one. But yeah, you go. 22 months old. <laughs> we were going to the airport and it was the first time I think that it was the last trip that I was taking of 1990. I was playing like Lyon, I think Antwerp, Paris, and I was in a spot for the last eight to, to make the final eight. We get to the airport and then I, I basically wave goodbye to Kim and Zach and then he got all upset. He couldn't believe that he wasn't coming. <laughs> And he was like really wanting to go. It was like I actually had his passport in my bag, you know, like my little travel bag. And he was like, "Shit, I'll see if I can get a ticket." And literally, he just came with me, no, no gear. And then he just literally, we just went. So on that three-week trip together, no nanny, nothing, no clothes. It was like okay. And then I needed to play well on this trip. To make the final eight. So that was like our first like real bonding trip together at a young age. And somehow, you know, like Kim, I think was a little bit shocked, but we survived it. I was, I think, like incredibly good at holding still in a seat, even for like an incredibly long tennis match, even before I was two years old. I could, you could just put me in a chair, right? And I'd sit there right, right and watch behind, the whole match. Like, you know, right behind, you know, where I sat. And literally, he would sit there, or like when I would practice, he would sit on my racket bag. But it was pretty good. Unfortunately, I, I blew the last match in Bear City to, uh, I think I lost a young Michael Stitch, and that knocked me out of, like, being in the top eight. Nothing ahead on us. But you went home knowing that your son was capable of sitting still for a while. That's poss possibly more valuable. Good patience. <laughs> <laughs> He probably knew you'd be back with a vengeance in 91. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, <laughs> it's a long game situation. So, Brad, you mentioned coaching Andre. You know, obviously you transitioned, like like Zach said, pretty seamlessly from the end of your playing career into coaching. Can you remember any specific challenges or rewarding moments about not only coaching Andre, but coaching elite athletes in general? I started coaching Andre in 94, why I was playing. So I did one year of playing and coaching together. Oh, wow. uh, 
And actually, when we started in Miami in uh, 94, Andre was actually ranked below me. It's a little bit like how I am doing tennis on TV. And I would say the same for the coaching. I didn't really make that big of a, a deal and transition about it other than, ah, okay, the thing that I realized most is now I'm looking through someone else's lenses and vision to how to actually play. It doesn't matter what I do and my thoughts, you know, because I can still have my brain, my thoughts, but now this is how Andre's going to play. So I just started thinking about it in terms of, okay, what does he need to do to maximize what he's doing? And so I try to keep that simple. I'd like to think that Andre is like some elite sports car. I'm a Chevy truck. I drive a Chevy truck, and that's how I think. And, I, you know, I'm not as complicated about saying things and doing things. And I think the times that are most important in coaching is actually about three, four months into coaching, we had our first real dip. Mm. And it's when you have your first dip that you kind of understand each other. Sometimes when things are up here, it's easy. You know, actually, sometimes when things are going really well, you sometimes you get worried. But actually, sometimes when things aren't going well is when you learn a lot about each other, get better. I think that, like, honestly, I tell you this, I'm not a magician. If I had a magic pill, I'd just give it to you, and then it would make it even easier. But I just like to think about it that Andre had this amazing God-given talent, but, you know, I just helped him make some simpler decisions on court. Yeah. Now, I know that he went from, I think it was 28th in the world to 1st in the world within about a year of you coaching him. Now, I understand that there's no secret sauce, but I do know that you guys went out to dinner a fair amount. Is that something that creates an intimacy between a coach and a player that sometimes is overlooked? It's a good question. For me, it's most important. I actually feel like that's the time that you understand your player the most. Sometimes you can throw, I call it, you throw a bone out there and you see how he takes you can have wrong discussions. Sometimes you pull back, you don't talk about the tennis, you talk about other things, then you slide in, you know, a little something about tomorrow. But I also feel like that the chemistry together in a simple setting is most important. And if you're not copacetic in that, I just think it doesn't, certainly for me, doesn't make it as fun. And I don't like this where you meet, you go, then you meet back the other day. There's a lot of coaches that like that. I find that that's a little bit, you're not as invested. Mm, I get that. Zach, this one's for you, man. I remember sitting in my college dorm room in 2006 and watching Andre's last match. I think it was Benjamin Becker. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Okay, Benjamin Becker ended the match with an ace. And hear me out. I'm by no means comparing my baseball career to Andre's tennis career, but I ended my career by striking out to end the World Series in the New York City's men's league. And I'd argue that those kinds of defeats are potentially as valuable for especially young athletes to witness as triumphs can be because they remind them that these larger-than-life athletes are fallible. 
Do you agree with that? Do you see the value in the loss as well as the win? Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. There's there's a lot there's a lot there that that was could have been learned by any kind of like young person watching. And I think even just going beyond him losing that match, it was a great run that tournament. You know, he's battling. His back was going on him. So every match that he won, they were roller coasters, and it was just a very emotional ride that last tournament. But then Andre, after after he lost the match, gave, I mean, I'd say, I mean, for sure within the sports world and maybe even bigger picture, one of the better speeches um, to the crowd. It was just so moving. He was just, you know, his classic, like, so humble and grateful for, you know, everyone's, like, support along the way. I think, yeah, that combined with the way, you know, he took that, that loss but then used it to sort of, Really show, you know, afterwards that there's, it's a way bigger, bigger thing than winning or losing a match. I just thought that's the greatness of Andre in in a lot of ways. He's an amazing dude. And I I could tell you sometimes he had some of the toughest losses, like in finals and slams or with, and he handled it like way better than I did. You know, sometimes (laughs) he did tatters and, and, um, Andre's an unbelievable person. He's got a great heart. He's the kind of guy, honest to God, he give anybody the shirt off his back. He just great people. And you know the greatness about sports is that nobody nobody beats Father Time. And just the fact that what you talk about, there's some special bond about competing that helps you in life. That just first of all, even if you're not the greatest at any level you're at, that you had a chance to compete. That you had a chance to go out there and do it. It's funny, it's like some of our most memorable battles are us playing basketball, playing ping pong together. We had some of the most intense ping pong games we've ever seen in the garage. We would break every paddle (laughs) and then... I don't know how we got from Andre retiring to to, to me breaking ping pong paddles. But but it's just being competitive... Is such a good thing. Also, too, for Andre, going back to him, he went out on his own terms. That was it. You know, he went out on his own terms, and the greatness of tennis, it survived and it goes on to the next day. Yeah. I mean, I remember Andre's speech like it was yesterday. It was one of the more moving things I've ever seen, you know, in a sports arena. The second most memorable moment I've ever had in relation to the U.S. Open, at least, was when Andy Roddick won. So kudos to you, Coach. I had that Andre speech for the longest time in my tennis shop, written all over the wall, the speech. Uh-huh. That's beautiful. And I, I was actually going to, one thing that just jogged my mind, too, about Andre losing that match, I was actually riding on the, the bus to the U.S. Open this year, um, working the event, and I sat next to another player, a uh, former player, that... Andre actually beat in a really good match, and it was in the semi to the French Open, Dominic Herbati. Oh, the other really oh, good uh, Slo- Slovakian former top ten player, and we were talking, and he get and he has young kids that play now. I think uh, a young daughter that plays, and he he had this good line that kind of stuck with me. He's like, you know what, tennis is a sport for losers. Basically, you have a 128 draw. There's 127 people that lose, and you can't take the loss you know, learn from the loss and move on, then it's just not a sport that you're going to succeed in. I think that sums it up. That's kind of osmosis from my coach. My coach told me when I was playing, he goes, these are 32 draws. 
there's going to be 31 losers. You have to learn to handle losing and don't hang out with people that are going to win you down or they're going to suck you into their negativity. Mm. You have to learn and move on. So that's the thing about tennis and a lot of times sports. Baseball, great freaking players fail 7 out of 10. That's right. The 3 out of 10, believe it or not, every time. Yeah. Brad, you mentioned your coach. Is that Coach Shivington? Yeah. He was the most impactful person in my tennis life, without a doubt. This was his um, his coach at uh, Foothill Junior College in between uh, Lorenzo ASU and Pepperdine. Yeah. He was the most impactful person that affected my tennis, undoubtedly, my whole life. And then I feel like a little bit of my coaching – you know, sometimes your wife's biggest fear is you become your, your dad through osmosis. I like to think of that I became a little bit of him, you know, from what I learned from him um, in the coaching that, that I got to. I just told him I got a chance to just coach better people than he did. He said, it was like, you had to coach me. You're all right. Do you honor yourself there? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he took pride in what you were doing, like you said, through the transitive property. Oh, definitely. Um, now, again, back to the father-son dynamic and competition. I heard that you guys played in a doubles tournament together. That's true. I just won. We were we were one and done in, in terms of official doubles tournaments. But, yeah, we played the national father-son. In, uh, they have it in La Jolla uh, in like San Diego area every December. What was it, three years ago? I think we played three years ago. Three yeah. years ago. We finally gave it a go. Hard to make the uh, the schedules work to, to have a full, you know, because it's a five, six-day tournament. So, Need a decent amount of time to be able to go down there and do it. It was fun, but it was, fun. it was a lot of work. It was fun, but I think that I kind of had this: we got to win it. It's like you know, win it or nothing. And we should have done better. I mean, we we played well like the first three matches, and then in the quarters, the match that we probably just needed to play decent, maybe we we uh, even a little better than decent, and we played like it was freezing. And then remember, it was like. A low sun, like you couldn't see everyone, <laughs> and we ended up losing like four and four to this team. I got so pissed. Got <laughs> yeah, it got it got heated. We were flat that match. I don't I mean I don't want to throw too much shade to those guys. I mean they played they played well. They beat us, but yeah, it was getting heated between uh, between like my dad and, and, and yeah, the other dad. Yeah, the other dad was a bit of an asshole. Every point that he won, <laughs> he was getting pumped up. There was and even they had about ten people behind us that were screaming on every point. I came a little unglued. There was, there was a few attempted, uh, we call it in, in doubles, uh, a few attempted tags going on, uh, them trying to hit each other with the ball. <laughs> I just really? mad a couple of times. Yeah, yeah. And we were like, oh, of 12 on break points. Jesus, we had love 40 a couple of times. Should have never yeah. lost this freaking match. All in all, not bad for the only tournament we played together, but uh, take some reps. You know what's funny is, is, and looking back on it, it's like if we would have played earlier or played a few more tournaments to have a little more chemistry, but we had played against each other yeah. so many times. We had played, we, well, actually, believe it or not, we played tennis a million times, but we did not get competitive playing against each other in tennis. But we would play basketball, we would get competitive. We would play horse, we would play little one-on-ones, but we played so many ping, uh, ping pong games. I mean, until finally his mom had to stop it. I mean, and that's probably why we, we know how it would have gone if we started playing 
some competitive tennis points and matches that would, I don't think that would have ended well either. So it was better to just keep it more in the, the hitting practice mode. Uh, so, yeah. so, I won a million close games, probably, between <laughs> sophomore year and junior year in high school. He would break every ping-pong table, and then Kim would get mad and, like, put a stop on it. And so I remember one time, so I would win so many times, 21-19, 22-20. They would be these unbelievably tight games. I think one time I let him win, and he knew it, and he got uh, yeah, so yeah. Yeah. me, he snapped because <laughs> I kind of like sent, you know, just kind of semi pulled back, and he and he actually was like, I didn't do a good job of making, you know, he knew it. Oh, we, we know each other too well. And There's he got no way he can. So mad at me for because he knew how competitive I was, and we would play and have these battles, and it wasn't he didn't want the win that way. No, wanted a fair and square. I think I, I was, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, listen, hindsight's twenty twenty. I also remember playing ping pong against my dad and breaking at least a paddle or two. That stuff gets heated, but it's good, like you said, that you didn't bring that onto, you know, a tennis court because it's a lot more expensive to replace a racket than it is a ping pong paddle. Yeah, and, and it was like, you know, it's like my dad. I didn't have any battles with my dad because my dad wasn't any good. Yeah, it's just absurdly like just the thing about my dad no matter what just you can play keep playing if he lost one and one he would he would still be enthusiastic got a chance to play for money today got a chance was all, you know he didn't take my dad didn't take the, the losses hard he's got like a couple of loves and they're they're neck and neck i used to say it was tennis first republican politics second so now it's like republican politics one through five tennis six through ten Mm. And then lost when I was like 12 or 13. I have a bad loss. Wasn't like back in the day you have satellite radio, FM radio. He would torture me back on the car ride back from Fresno and make me listen to like Republican radio for three hours. (laughs) (laughs) It's a proper punishment as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) (laughs) Learned a lesson on that one. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, like you said, continuing to play is half the battle. If you have the mental fortitude to get back up and do that again, even after a heartbreaking loss, that's a huge component of what it takes to be a champion or to be a winner. And Brad, I think in Winning Ugly, you something that you detailed is that you prided yourself on establishing that mental edge and disrupting your opponent's rhythm. Because of that, I kind of always likened you to Dennis Rodman, except without the wedding dress and the bizarre Kim Jong-un friendship. <laughs> Who is your favorite opponent to recognize, analyze, and capitalize against? You know, it's funny, one of my really closest friends, Chris Mullen, if you ask him about Dennis Rodman, he'll say, you know what? Anytime you say, that guy could be my teammate, all good. That guy just wants to run, grab the rebound, and he will. He'll play defense on somebody. He doesn't need to practice. He doesn't need to do anything. He's just going to show up. He's going to get 17, 18 rebounds and throw it back to you. So you guys, he goes, I'll take that guy on my team anytime. I didn't really think about, honestly, about disrupting my opponent, like all these things, more than I was just trying to figure out a way that what I could do to navigate my game to my opponent's strengths and weaknesses. So I always thought 
even at 11 or 12 years old, even when I was a kid, when I was really small, I always thought about what my opponent did really well and what he didn't do well. And I think a lot of tennis players and a lot of athletes from different sports think about a lot of themselves. They don't really think about what their opponent is doing. I played well, or he got lucky. He was, you know, he got, you know, he was on fire. I played like shit. I never think like that. I always think about what I can do and what my opponent's strengths and weaknesses are. So that, that kind of happened at a really young age, and I was always thinking about little small details. Heck, when I was, you know, I take Zach to the tournament, I was always telling you the same kind of thing. Watch the guy's forehand, research and I just think about little basic things of strengths and weaknesses and how you can navigate your strengths and weaknesses to your opponents. Hmm. I wanted to add, when he said he was small, he means actually literally because he, even if he had a growth spurt like crazy late when you were like, what, 19? 18. So right. I probably a lot of that tactical problem solving you probably did pick up when you were undersized for your age. And, and got, then you got the luck of the growth spurt later. Which 16, been double when I got my first driver's license. Bang on 16, I was 5'3", 105. <laughs> so, like, when I was, like, 13, you know, let's say if I was 4'11", with an 11-and-a-half shoe, I was at <laughs> letter L, not an I, like a 6'1 guy with a size 7 shoe. So I had to learn to play small, but I didn't think of myself as small other than trying to figure out. I always had this thing. And the same thing, even to this day, or when I was 13, if I was playing one-on-one basketball, which I was legendary and being really good at one-on-one basketball, two-on-two or baseball, I was always doing the same. What's the other guy do well? What doesn't he do well? I think the same thing when I watch a basketball game, a pro game, I'm always thinking about strength and weakness, what the other guy's strength is trying to do to your weakness. I've played some basketball with Zach. He's got a smooth shot. The jump shot's not bad. Yeah. The buck is good at, like, games. He plays, like, like football. He plays basketball. Basically, he's really good in a variety of games. Very good. But, yeah, he's got a tricky b-ball game. He's got he's got the lefty hook, even though he's a righty. Oh. He can go both sides pretty well. And, and he kills me on the glass. So when we play a horse, it was he was the, it was bank, bank, banks all day long. Yeah, I, I you know, uh, Willie Glass off the bank, like 10 foot in, everything off the bank. When I was like, let's say, 18, me and this other buddy of mine, his name was Craig Friedman. And we could be anybody in two-on-two on the basketball team, the starters, any amount of money, you know, because just in two-on-two, one-on-one, especially one-on-one, isn't the same as five-on-five in basketball. It's like, you know, it's like tennis, it's like figuring out your opponent's weakness. So I was really good in one-on-one. Because it's a little bit like tennis, because it's not the same. It's funny, is when you hear basketball, people talk about basketball, playing a five-on-five is completely different than playing a one-on-one game. That's true. And there's also something to be said for cross-training between sports, making you a better athlete at whatever, you know, your choice sport is. And that actually reminds me, Brad, I think you've said that there's a lot of parallels between tennis and boxing, right? If you could pick out a boxer at any point during our history, who would you like to coach? I mean, it's a good question. I think that the most important thing is obviously whoever it is. It's that you have this instant connection. 
I think that when you're really investing in somebody and you, I call it, you love them. You, you know, you want it more for them than yourself. Hmm. You, you get really excited about what you do. And when I started coaching Andre, I think that that's the thing that I found that I like most. That all of a sudden now I'm trying to help somebody make their dreams possible. He's got more skills than me, but I can help him achieve these things that he wants. And I think that with boxing, it will be similar to tennis, is just helping somebody be able to, you know, maybe do some things that they didn't see that they could do. And also, too, when I started coaching somebody, and Zach heard me say this, doesn't matter where they are, when I'm coaching somebody, I say it's day one. Doesn't matter what happened before, doesn't matter what happened to the first day that I'm working with them, it's the start of a blank canvas. It's day one. Doesn't matter. It's what we're going to do tomorrow. Because yesterday doesn't matter. That's kind of how I think. I keep it simple. I'm not that complex. But I do think about what we're doing and where we're going. And it's amazing how many people get caught in yesterday and what happened before. It seems to be a real speaking point in coaching and sports or also, too, that you rest upon what you've got. Oh, geez, we had this great one six months ago. I always think about the most important day is tomorrow. Yeah. The, the analogy is definitely on point, though, with the, with the tennis and boxing. I mean, it's they're both 1v1, you know, one's in the ring, one's on the court. You can even liken certain shots. I, I think of it, yeah, like a, you know, a forehand is... You know, your, your uppercut and slice is like a jab. really does match up well tactically. You know, the, ten, tennis, just the benefit is you don't, you don't get hit in the head, which is, yeah, which exactly. is nice. You're, you're a little bit more distance between you and the other guy. In boxing, like tennis, you know, you're trying to tell your, how you're going to maximize your strength to maybe your opponent's weakness. What is your opponent's strength to what your weakness is? One thing I was good at as I learned of myself, and I find a lot of guys that are at my level and below me, I call it, they're not honest with their weaknesses. Everybody feels like what they maybe don't quite do that well, they, in their mind, they do 10 times better. And they're not honest about, if you ask them, you know, like such and such, they think, geez, their backhand or their left hook is 10 times better. And it's like newsflash, it's like a really marginal shot. You know, I wish it was way better. And so I do think understanding your strengths and weaknesses and being honest about them then helps you compete better. But like if all of a sudden, like me and you both know that Zach's backhand is average, but if he thinks it's the best in the world, it's like, you know what? And then you pull trigger on it everywhere because you think it's so great. It's like, the numbers that are going to come from it aren't going to justify you pulling the trigger on it all the time. Lessons to be learned, strengths and weaknesses can fly, mean, fly across the board. And he knows, like, my backhand, I had a really good backhand. You know why I had a really good backhand? It's because I was honest about it. I don't think I ever once just tried to pull the trigger and rip a one-hander up the line. You know, or I didn't try to pr- – I just was a pusher. I just make it, chip it, bun it, uh, hit it cross, 
it was the ultimate left jab for boxing that I'm just trying to just keep doing it to set up my forehand. And I never just would pull the trigger because I was like, even when I was weighing it, it's like, I don't do it well enough. Mm. Wish I did. <laughs> well, speaking about, speaking about being honest with yourself, I was wondering if you guys want to test your knowledge in our takes and fakes trivia game. It's a little bit of everything, but all things relevant to the Gilberts. How's that? All right, cool. So question one is for Zach. Zach, your dad won five singles titles, including Cincinnati, where he beat four future Hall of Famers en route to the championship. Who were those four guys? Oh, that's a, yeah, because I, I, you know, I know, I know they always talk about that. So Chang was one of them. Yep. I want to say quarters. finished at like one twenty-three in the morning. I want to say he beat Edberg that year. Edberg in the final seventy-six in the third. Graham told him you on the <laughs> on the stage. Maybe Pete as well. Pete in round of sixteen. Okay, one more. Okay. One um, more. In the semis. Courier. Ah, Boris. Boris. Okay. <laughs> Four and three sets. Wow. Yeah, no, I know his own. Yeah, I, I remember you, you telling me about the cramping and then after the finals doing the trophy ceremony. Everybody says to me at ESPN or Killer always gives me, he says that I have the surliest looking picture ever of, and he's seen it before, he says that, like they have this picture of like the different winners. And I'm kind of surly looking, like, you know, when it, and I tell everybody that like the mascot delayed three hours for rain delay. I don't think I ate enough. And then after it rained, it was a million degrees. And at 6-5 in the breaker in the third, as I was hitting the forehand, I, I started to completely full body print. I win the match. We're getting to the ceremony. Kim hands me Zach. And I almost drop him because I'm in a full body cramp. And then literally, so all these pictures of me, and I'm like kind of looking because I'm cramping. <laughs> I hope you gave me that pretty quickly. Yeah, I did. I gave my drops. No fumbles, please. We were only about nine months old there. It's like no dropping you in front of like 10,000 people. Uh, no, no. So five titles. Is that five titles in 89? Because I won more than five in my career. I think you need to correct me then. Oh, yeah, yeah. I wasn't. Yeah, it's, it's, it's 20. It's 20. Oh, so it was five titles the year of it's Cincinnati. Well, thank you for the correction. I, that's always helpful. Um, Brad, question two is for you, all right? So Zach and I hosted a Halloween party when we lived together. What did Zach dress up as? Well, I don't know if he's going to know this. <laughs> what, what year? was <laughs> Last year, 19, 2019? 18. Last year. 18. I, I get it. That's, I mean, unless you give me, like, some sort of, a, like, a hook, I mean. I'll give you a clue. I'll give you a clue. It was a play on a new mode of transportation in Santa Monica. Yeah. Oh, a moped. Yeah. Like a stupid moped that, like, parks <laughs> on the street. <laughs> Yeah. It drives me nuts that like you, you, you have to walk around those damn scooter things. Like I can't believe people get on those things without a helmet. 
helmet, the elbow pads, and they just drop him on the street. So he was a scooter boy? <laughs> yeah, I was a bird scooter. Oh, yeah. Nice. Yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty good. All right. Question three is for both of you. The USTA Foundation gives an outstanding service award every year to an individual who embodies the values of dedicated service that the foundation is predicated on. Who won that award this year? I, so there's a lot of, I'm sure, well, well-qualified people for it. I'll give you a hint. She, Wait a minute. I'm just going to take a stab the way you just phrased this question. i got a feeling maybe it's somebody I work with. Somebody like uh, Chris A Great guess. The winner was actually a pro and a former president of the USTA, but it's not Chris. Oh, Katrina Adams. Katrina Adams is right. She like ran, she ran like the Harlem Tennis Foundation. Yeah, she's a great lady. You know, yeah. Chris has a big foundation in Florida. I just like I just took a stab. What's Chris's foundation about in Florida? Um, she helps, I think, a lot of mothers, young mothers at risk, uh, you know, from drug addiction families, uh, broken marriages families, and she has this big event in Florida every year, which is this week, and they play this big uh, tennis charity event, which raises money every year for this, and she's, she's a great lady. She does, you know, it's all for trying to help young Mothers, young single women that are in tough situations in life. That's I love hearing that stuff. That's awesome. And it actually reminds me, I saw a video, Brad, of you um, interviewing Fed on the court in 2014. And you were a really good sport and you participated in the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge. What kind of philanthropic endeavors have you guys lent a hand with since then? I remember that was freaking cold. They threw the whole damn thing. It wasn't just a little thing. They threw the whole trash thing. It was like, man, I cramped up in the car for like an hour because I was so that I wanted to get out of there afterwards. It didn't change my clothes. Big mistake. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, we give to like, uh, you know, the di- different tennis charities. The one, um, one in the, in the Bay Area. The, uh, yeah, and also Peace Hat, which is a charity that Dick Cool's been involved in. I play in an event up there every year. Yeah, to benefit um, at risk of East Palo Alto. They, they bring him on to the Stanford campus and give him after school tennis and tutoring. Very, very good event. I, I like and great charity. Anything that we can do anytime at any of these charity events that we can help. I love most if, I, if we can help kids. A bunch of times I give... Kids gathered a bunch of my old shoes, a lot of clothes, and we'll send them to, like, she sent it to a couple big boxes to a lady in Houston for a homeless shelter in Houston. She took some pictures of, like, some people wearing, like, my gear. I do it for L.A. I do it up. Uh, I would take every year, and I still do take boxes to Goodwill, and we just give it. You know, I feel like that if we can give, and it can be used for somebody else, then just knock on wood. And then there was one other one I wanted to talk about, too. So at San Quentin Prison, they have a tennis team there. They have one court in the prison yard. And as, like, a community outreach, I believe they have baseball maybe as well and and one or two other sports. 
they sort of um I went with my college team. I think you would just went maybe on your own. I just went on my own. I played with them. I mean, considering I grew up in San Rafael, which is five minute drive from where San Quentin Prison is, and obviously there's a lot of stigma that, that goes along with that. But going inside the grounds and and talking with the guys that are on the team that have earned years and years of um, you know good behavior credits to participate in it, you know, it was really you know, I learned a lot, you know, so much. These guys were, most of them were young, 18, 20-year-olds when they made huge mistakes. But to kind of see the, the humanity side of behind it, it was really a kind of a, yeah, life-changing experience in a lot of ways. And then just to be able to sort of connect these guys to the outside world and just give them a little bit of a break from the prison day-to-day. And it was rewarding in a lot of ways. Um, you know what I got to do from my tennis shop? It was kind of interesting. I got 12 rackets and 12 pairs of sneakers for the, the team, but they had to all be exactly the same. And that the sneakers had to be white. Everything, you know, nothing could be different. So I was able to get them and be able to donate them to the team. That was a really rewarding experience. And this one guy told me he had been in the prison for 30 years and he was a really cool guy. And he said to me that in in this prison, didn't matter what color you were, ethnicity, what background, anything, he said tennis crossed those barriers on that one court. And he said that he could go back 30 years ago and started playing tennis. He wouldn't have been doing the dumb thing that he did when he was 19 because he said lines and tennis have rules and they teach you values. But he said he didn't have at 19. So he said that the tennis basically saved his life inside that prison. Wow. A great story. The thing about and, philanthropy, Andre was, is an amazing person for what he started. And now he has like close to 100 schools around the country. He's an amazing philanthropist and visionary. Incredible. Yeah. I actually had somebody from Athletes for Hope on as a guest earlier in the year, which is one of his philanthropic endeavors that he founded. And the way that she spoke about him, she had only started the job very recently when I caught up with her. But the way that she spoke about how her colleagues had been impacted by Andre in the few moments that they had to interact with him seemed profound. So like what you're saying, it doesn't seem off base at all. It's really nice to hear, you know. He's an amazing person, has an incredible gift. And if there's 20 people in the room, he can make everybody feel comfortable. And I, the most amazing thing is Andre went to school until he was only about 13. You know, so maybe till about the eighth grade. But he's an absolute genius. You know, he's got a photographic memory. And he wanted to give kids the opportunity that, that he didn't have because his life was about tennis. And I think that what he's done, I told him he's doing better things after tennis than he did while that he was playing tennis. He's an amazing person. That's what this podcast is all about. I'm glad to hear it. It also sparked something in my mind. Speaking of going to school, I realized after doing a little bit of prep for our conversation today that Zach and I both have bachelor degrees in American studies. I can speak from my experience, but Zach, what has tennis taught you that your degree could not? Certainly 
both have, have taught me a lot. I think, well, tennis, especially, you know, being on your own out there on the court, taught me a lot of kind of on-the-fly problem-solving and keeping your temperament kind of in check. And there's really just all kinds of little competitive nuances that it teaches you that I think it's hard hard to translate over to the academic side. On the flip side, I think going to school, I mean, I think it teaches you all kinds of diligence, you know, just the process of getting your degree teaches you all kinds of good work habits. So they sort of complement each other well in that regard. But yeah, I mean, I think I feel like I've had some pressure packed, you know, midterms and finals, but I feel like I never felt like as much pressure as playing a, a big tennis match, especially when you got a, a whole team counting on you. So it certainly made some things out of that, you know, maybe feel a little less stressful than I think that they would for other people. Well, he's 50 times more well-rounded. <laughs> I wasn't a good student, you know, didn't like school. I mean, when I was in school, like when I was a kid, I mean, the only thing I was thinking about, somehow I felt like the clock would go backwards. You know, that 50 minutes was paid. I couldn't wait to be <laughs> playing basketball or tennis. I mean, so it was like, I think school, like, you had to go because, you know, okay, so if you didn't go to school, you couldn't play, you know. Yeah. But I would say in school I was kind of cutting corners, you know, just I would put more of my heart and soul in competing because I do think that a lot of times in business and life, you know, you, you have to be competitive. You have to grind. You have to work hard. That's the one thing that I am good at. And a lot of times, sometimes in school, you have to do the same. You have to, I would tell my kids that, that like, you know, or my daughters, like, just keep fighting, keep grinding. And whether or not the paper, the studies, you know, you don't have to be perfect. You just got to get through it. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, trying to be too perfect, got to write too good of a paper, get a perfect score, messes you up. Just sometimes be satisfied, get an 80, 85, and move on. Yeah. There's a whole lot of collegiate athletes that would love to have an 80 or an 85. And I was thinking about this when that new legislation passed that, uh, that Governor Gavin Newsom passed recently to allow collegiate athletes to profit from licensing their name or image or likeness. How do you guys feel about that? Do you think that it's a long time coming and it's good that it's finally arrived? Yeah, I think it was a long time coming. Absolutely. Yeah. I can't say that I've ever been a big fan of like the overbearingness of like the NCAA, um, on student athletes. End of the day, it's not going to change things big picture wise. I think as much as some people think, and I think for these kids to be able to, you know, especially in, in these marquee sports like football, basketball, I mean, every other walk of life, you can profit off your likeness. So the fact that the NCAA is just trying to like have this last bit of control, I think, is is over the top. And, I, and I'm just I'm happy that, that that California took the initiative, and it looks like the rest of the of the dominoes are, are falling now. I think it's a freaking joke. That like the coach can get paid ten million bucks a year, and the guy's not even supposed to be able, or the lady's not even be able to supposed to have a job anymore. Yet you're selling his or her jersey in in school. People or whether or not it's on video games, and and they're not supposed to profit a nickel is beyond insane. And these are revenue sports, especially football and basketball, that they're profiting on it. I'm saying the foundation of the university is built on studies. But 
in some of these schools that football and basketball are huge business. And a lot of times some of these football kids, maybe if they don't make a, a professional, they might be scarred or hurt for life. And if they were being profited off of, and they should have had the same opportunity to profit if there was profit to be made. And I'll tell you about how cool Coach Shiv was. 1980. I won a tournament, like my first men's open that I won. I won the Stockton Open. And I won a thousand bucks. And it was actually like then, it was actually like a pretty good deal. It's like the first big, you know, tournament I won. It wasn't an ATP tournament, it was a men's open. And then it was like total, ooh, amateur. And, you know, because everything's amateur. And so I was like, yeah, I'm an amateur. And then Shiv told me, he goes, just donate the money to Foothill Tennis Patrons. We'll get it, you know, so I think that, that like, I'm helping whatever this thing that he's helping or it's for the team. Um, and so they, okay, no problem. About three days later, I come to practice. Coach comes over, puts in my bag, puts an envelope of a thousand bucks. Doesn't say nothing. <laughs> Look in the envelope. And it was like, okay, I won two more tournaments, like in, in like the next month of the same kind of level, same time each time, no story, nothing. He just put the thousand bucks in my bag, and nothing said. Wow! Like meant so much. It was like shit is the coolest. <laughs> yeah, you want to follow that guy for sure. That's one way to get on your player's good side. That's for sure. <laughs> We're talking about youth athletics, right? At the collegiate level, it's one story. Um, once you get up to the pros, it's obviously a different one. But if we're kind of reverting back to basketball, I wanted to know how you guys feel about having a team that you root for not winning a championship this year. Because I love the fact that you guys have to come back down to reality because I'm a Knicks fan. But the Doves have been so spectacular lately. Is there a player on the Doves that's flying under the radar, you know, that you think is going to help him turn it around? Obviously, Steph coming back healthy is going to help. Okay, I'll start, then he'll go, listen, we went from 1975 to the start of this run. We were shit. That would be my <laughs> you know, answer. We never even got to a conference final in 39 years. And during that 39 years, the Lakers owned us. We never won the division once. He's, I mean, so we didn't see any winners. He didn't see the A's or the Raiders. He didn't see one winner in his lifetime. No. And I told him when this happened, this first year, it was like, honest to God, my hope was that I hope that he gets to see, you know, whether or not it's the Warriors, the Raiders, or A's, one of our three teams win in our lifetime. Because the Giants had won, and we're not Giants fans. And mm -hmm. Um, East Bay Sports and only. The Niners were really good. <laughs> and the Niners had, had, had won a bunch of Super Bowls. But we're Raiders. Raiders haven't won in his lifetime since 83. We went to the Super Bowl, saw them lose. So <laughs> it's like he said in the tournament, it's a 128 drop every year in sports with just one winner. So the fact that we got to celebrate that together and this he says I've become so crazy. I took every win and lost so Because I said, I'm never going to see nothing like this again in my life. So I'm going to literally watch and follow every single game. And yeah. this year yeah. is totally a mulligan year. So we'll be back. 
But I like this Eric Paschal. He's from Westchester. I'm rooting for him. Yeah, Eric Paschal's actually, I think, yeah, he's been the one, the one for sure bright spot for a second round pick. Uh, I mean, he's got, he's, you know, he's got good size, like, for being only 6'6", like, he's a strong dude, and he's got some, he's got some moves, and he can shoot a little bit, I think, and then, I mean, looking like it'll be a lottery pick, you know, next year, so. Tell story about his teammate. Well, yeah, we, it's, don't hear this very often, maybe, I mean, I don't know, never in the NBA, but we had three guys on the Warriors that went to the same high school in Westchester, I believe, in Connecticut, Pascal, Omari Spellman, and Damian Lee, and Pascal and Omari Spellman were high school, college, and now NBA teammates. That's wow. Say, maybe never happened. I don't high know. School, two years together at Villanova, where they won the NCAA championship. Now they're teammates for the Warriors. That's a pretty cool story. That is. That is. I mean, have you seen that chemistry come to fruition on the court? Uh, they just they were down <laughs> last night at one point eighty three to forty. All right, yeah. so maybe. They, by 48 last night, Steve Kerr was so funny. I'm listening to afterwards. He's doing like, I'm looking at my computer. Uh, he goes, well, if we would have made a play here and a play there and maybe a little hustle play there, maybe we would only lost by 42. And <laughs> I thought it was so freaking funny. And everybody was looking at him deadpan. And he goes, I'm making a freaking joke. It's <laughs> uh, fantastic with the media. Like, his honesty is so refreshing. How about this last night? They had eight healthy players. Not one of the players that played last night was on the team last year. I've never heard of that before. Wow. No wonder why we lost by 48. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right, Brad, before we wrap things up, I wanted to know if you have any stock market tips to employ as the holidays approach. The stock market is, he knows I'm crazy. It's like an opponent. Every day. And I compete against myself and I keep score against myself. I wish that every time that I did something when I was younger, I went the opposite way. I don't know how many times that somebody told me it can't go higher or it can't go lower. Or like when a stock is going, oh, Jesus, you made X amount, you sell. I was like, or when the stock, you don't sell, oh, it can't go lower, you buy more. When it's lower, it can go to shit or worse. When it's going higher, don't listen to people. It can go way higher. Uh, and patience. My wife told me also, too, an 88 by Apple, and I was like, nah, it's too expensive. Dumbest thing that I ever did. Not listening to Kim buy Apple, and she would tell me, like, every five years, buy Apple. I finally got it now, but it took me forever. Uh, <laughs> don't listen to people. Listen to yourself. And when it goes higher, don't just all of a sudden sell because, oh, it can't go higher. No. Look at the fundamentals of the company. Look what they're actually doing. The people need and want what they're doing. And he turned me on to the stock that I've been doing great on now the last, and I've been patient with it. So the two stocks that I have the most in by far, one I've had five years, one I've had three years, Salesforce and GoDaddy. And I'll say this, be patient. And grind. He likes funds. I don't like funds. I just like individual well, I always tell him he, he's too roller coaster with it every day. I'm like, long view, if it's going up over the course of the year, be happy. But he's like, every day, oh, if it's, well, I like, if it, if it's a bad day, it's freaking like... I take it personal. Yeah. I'm up at 4 a.m. 
you know, market open 6.30, between 6.30 and 1, I'm focused. <laughs> well, you guys still have a place up in the Bay Area, right? Negative. 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 I have a tennis shop in Marin County, which I still have in Greenbrook. Okay. All right. Well, we'll make sure the listeners swing by if they are in the Bay Area. Uh, the reason I was asking, because Salesforce is obviously an SF proper. You guys can go knock on their door if that stock ever plummets. <laughs> well, it's building in San Francisco now. Yeah, yeah. So my tennis shop is called BG, BG Tennis Nation. And my buddy tomorrow, Lars Ulrich of Metallica, he uh, is doing a fireside chat for the Dreamport uh Tomorrow he's, he's doing a, and I was asking him, I think it's some rap, some entertainer guy. I didn't know who he was. Well, I, yeah, we, we, we still gotta figure that one out. Yeah, so know. he's doing, <laughs> he's telling everybody, that, come on by tomorrow, I'm doing the fireside chat for the Dreamforce in the, the week. It's, um, I think it's, tomorrow is the culmination of Okay. That's yeah, Alright, we'll get, we'll get some folks in, and drive up some foot traffic then. Alright fellas, this has been a clinic in positivity work ethic and family values. Thank you for hanging out with the Give Back Gang. We really, really appreciate your time. Where can everyone find you and the awesome work you're doing on social media? BG Tennis Nation or uh get me. Yeah. That's it. He's quite the active tweeter. I, I'm so. crazy on Twitter. Yeah. That's all I do. I don't do anything else, but you can get me on there. I keep right. a lower social media profile, so <laughs> I've noticed. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks again for tuning in, Give Back Gang. Don't forget to download, subscribe, and leave a review of the Give Back Sports Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you access your free podcast content. Find us on Facebook at Give Back Podcasts, Give Back, always spelled G-I-V-B-K, on Twitter at Give Back Podcasts, on our website, GiveBack.com, and stay tuned for Episode 19. Till then, remember, we've all got soul in our step and brilliance to bestow. Take a minute today to do something that improves tomorrow. Bye for now. Cheers, man. See ya.